Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close. I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask the questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, let's get into today's podcast. I'm sitting here with R. Paul Wilson, who uh, has been a friend for at least 30 years, I'm mm-hmm. guessing. We've known each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk just a little bit. You uh, sound happy about that. Yeah, I am. As, I'm yeah. ecstatic about that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Isolani, which is uh, garnering all kinds of great reviews. The one thing I don't know about the movie is what is the plot of that movie? Oh, Can you sum it up? Um, <clears throat> it's about a very young mother who is estranged from her parents, um, who are an upper middle class family, and she's living on the worst estate in Glasgow, where her grandmother used to live. Um, and she has this very young child who's about four years old. And um, she's struggling to keep her child under these circumstances. She's almost 18, she looks younger. Um, and uh, social services are trying to take our child from her and give it to her parents. And in the middle of all of this, uh, she looks out her window one night and she sees a guy getting murdered. And uh, she sees who does it. And they think these buildings are, because they're condemned, nobody's living in them. Um, but we actually filmed in an area with condemned buildings wow. that were, people wow. were living in. Um, and uh, as a result, the prosecutor who loses her previous witness, who's the guy that got murdered, tries to manipulate her into becoming a witness to continue her case. Unfortunately, um, the person the prosecutor trusts the most, the police officer, who was her father's best friend, and so she trusts him implicitly, is the guy who has been running the the crime that she's been trying to resolve oh my. all these years. So he's a crooked cop. So in the middle of this very complicated situation drops this very young girl who appears to be a victim with no no knight in shining armors coming to save her. And she's the smallest, most, you know, fragile um, appearing uh, part of this and yet she's also the most dangerous because uh, you know, you get between a mother and her child and uh you are in the most dangerous place on earth. That's ah. the way it kind of turns out. So it's a very complex story, but essentially a young mother sees a murder and is manipulated into becoming a witness, but she um, she ultimately plays everybody off of everybody else. Complicated. Do you find that, because you have uh, not only directed these movies, but written these movies, uh, do you find that a magic structure, just as you're talking about this, because I assume there, at the end of Isolani, there must be sort of some surprise payoff that's unexpected in, in terms of how it resolves, that you almost are setting it up like, uh, like a magic trick uh, in, in plot think, sometimes? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, y- yeah, there's definitely an element of that. I think that uh, there is a surprise of sorts, but it's not like a, a shock twist ending or anything. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the things... When you don't have very much money, you know, I mean, this is, 
you know, ultimately when you add up everything that we manage to beg, borrow, steal, trade. I mean, I've done shows for locations. You know, I said, yeah. I'll, I'll come in and do a show, and I did. Um, in order to pay for locations, I've um, you know traded favors. I've gone to people with cap in hand, and they've, they've been incredibly generous. And you know, we've we've had tens, you know, hundreds of thousands in, in, in amazing resources made available to us because we asked in the right way in the right time. But when you don't have the resources to, you know, make a film over the amount of time that I, I'd love to have done this over six weeks. In fact, we did it over three weeks, just over three weeks. Um, when you don't have all of these things that you would have on, I don't want to say a proper production because we are professional production. But if you don't have those resources, then one of the resources you do have is, you know, what you bring to the table as a writer, first of all. And so I, I kind of approached it as a very subtle magic trick rather than a, an obvious one. In, in terms of, you know, there's very, there are a couple of very well-known movie tropes used in this. Mm. Um, I don't want to say too much, but, you know, you, you kind of see it and you go, oh, I see what's going on there. But then that doesn't actually pay off the way it would normally. And the answer comes from somewhere else that hopefully you didn't consider. And so it, it, it kind of rewards you that way. And then you've got the idea that, you know, I don't tell you who everybody is and what, you know, you don't know who's who until halfway through the movie. You don't know how it all interrelates until halfway through the movie. Ah. This, this person, you know, is this person involved? No, she trusts him. And, you know, all of that stuff. And and that actually, you know, was interesting for me. Um, and it's very, very difficult to do. It's very, you know, as a filmmaker, it's difficult to... Well, that, yes, sense, that was... You know? uh, as, a, as a viewer, you were saying, well, who do I trust in this movie? Mm. You know, who do I? Uh, yeah. And then it all, and then it all unfolds. And, and it, would you also not say? I mean, for me, uh, with the advent of uh, seamless uh, computer imagery that can be incorporated into a movie, uh, that the writing becomes secondary to the special effects. But if you don't have a budget that's going to allow you to do all those kinds of whiz-bang things, then it comes down to what movies are supposed to be anyway, which is a great script, yeah. an engaging script. Yeah, I think that's what you've got to try and have, no matter what you've got. You know, if, if, if I'm ever asked to do something with a massive special effects budget, the writing is, is the first... You know, the, 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 we talk about 3D movies, but the, the dimension they usually miss out is, is the story, you know? Um, so, you know, I always love the, these sort of false movie posters guys do for, for, for humor. And the one for Transformers, instead of the word Transformers, it says really loud. <laughs> and that's kind of all I see in that movie. Yes. It's just, you know, I understand you go with your friends, you have a good time, action happens. None of it makes a lick of sense. I hate movies that, you know, they give up logic for convenience. And, but I understand how it happens, you know. And if the audience comes out and enjoyed it because their favorite movie star was in it, they thought the fights were fantastic and all that kind of stuff, then, you know, that's entertainment. There's no, there's no doubt that was entertainment. Whether or not it's anything that would interest me, it wouldn't. So I think story is what you always have to start with. Um, you know, I just directed a film where I didn't write it and someone else wrote it. And they, uh, I, I did a rewrite in terms of, you know, I want to do it this way, so I'm going to come at the script, but it's still his script. He wrote it and, you know, it, it's his. And for me as a director, that was a lot more interesting oh. in actual fact because the writer is, um, you know, there's a reason I think writers are not, welcome on set many times and it's because it is a relay race you know the writer starts and creates the source material and I, I think should always be you know 
you know, his name has to be as big as anybody on the screen, in my opinion. And then, um, you know, you come on as a director and you take that somewhere else. You move it into a different format and you have to make changes. And things that you have to write in the script so that you can understand what's happening, um, sometimes you, you discard that because you can show it visually. And if you've had to do something in the script in order to make the script legible, story-wise, you don't necessarily recognize that issue when you get to set as a director. Ah. But when you see it in somebody else's script, you, it almost jumps out at you. So I've been in the edit bay, and you know I edit as well, and that's not by choice. I think... Uh, you know, we had a really clever guy on board. He was going to help me edit, but the problem was with with budget and time being very short. You you basically shoot what you need, and if you don't know exactly what I thought on the day when I called, uh, ah, I see. Move on, right? Mm-hmm. When we decide to move on, I know we've got it. Unless he's right inside my head. I mean, we have a script supervisor, and she knows what I'm going for, and when. You know, and she, you know, she. I think script supervisors, a lot of people don't know, are really expert filmmakers, and they should be. And Toria, who works with me, she's, you know, she'll know what I'm going for, and when I say I've got it, she'll mark it down. But then, if you're the editor and looking at it, you're, you're kind of going, oh, what did he want? What did he want? What did he want? So it's kind of the same as the director editing, anyway. I see. So, but the third stage should be an editor taking off of me, as a, as a director. I don't want to edit either because I want to direct the movie. And I want to take what the writer has and then make it into something that works as a film and then have an editor compile it as something that works as a film for the next stage. And then you kind of work together with the editor then to, mm. to shape it. It's still my vision, yes. ultimately. But, what the you know, Jaws is a classic example. I mean, Jaws, it was all there. But if, um, if the editor hadn't brought something massive that took all of this stuff. And you have to remember that you would assume the director who was there for, you know, 10 months, has every shot in his head. Right. Right? Right. And so, but somebody who comes at it cold and says, well, I've seen all the shots, and the ones that jumped out at me were these three. Really? Why? That's, and then you put it together, and go, oh, I see where you're going with that. And then you work together to to reform. It's still the director's vision. But, uh, you know, so all of that is to say that, you know, when you write something and you create it as a film, you, as the writer, you have to sort of kill the writer before you step onto the set. And I'm only learning that as, you know, it's my second feature. But on the set, I was having to detach myself from things that I thought were important in the writing in order to see what was important inside the, the lens. Now, this, is, this is, leads me to my next uh, question, which is when Lisa and I watch a movie, and it says written and directed by, mm-hmm. we both go, uh-oh. Yeah. Because it seems in, 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 inevitably there will be a scene that goes on 5, 10, 20 mm-hmm. seconds mm-hmm. too long. And you say to yourself, oh, written and directed by. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. see. Yeah, yeah. So I can see how, you know, if it's two different people, then you can take what the writer did and without emotion, without brutal. emotion, yeah. you can you can deal with it the way it has to be dealt with. But when it's your own words, it's an interesting it's, a, it's an interesting problem. One of the one of the problems is that you know, I when I'm editing, I take I edit everything together and then I come at it. I, I take two weeks off. Ah, and, good. You know, I did that with uh, Isolani. I went to uh, Japan for a couple of weeks, and then on the plane home, I rewatched it with, and took notes, and then attacked it and cut and cut and cut and cut. And now that I rewatch it with audiences, 
I look at it. I can't watch it because I see all the stuff I wish I'd done. I, maybe I should have done that little hair later. And that's all I see. Sure. But, you know, I'm a, ve- I'm a fan of longer takes. I'm a fan of taking our time. I'm a fan of an old style of movie making, which may not connect entirely with the new audience. But, you know, I, I, I like to have an even pace. But at the same time, you, want, you do want people to go, oh, I felt like it was, you know, didn't feel like it was that long. And then some people say, well, I felt long because of that. But I'm a fan of taking our time with everything and not saying, you know, introducing a character. Hi, my name is John and I'm a dentist and I really hate uh, this. That's, yes, and that's so common today. Thank you, Dr. Exposition. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a, you know, there are, there are writers who I think are, once they get to the, the finished script, have expertly layered everything so it happens at the right time and the right place. But in actual fact, that may be retimed again later by the editor, or you know. Mm-hmm. So there is a there is a habit. It's it's very hard as the editor and the writer and the director to be entirely, um, you know, cold and un, you know, unemotional. For, I, I uh, think that's always going to be an issue. But you know, at the same time, you know, you make the film, and you know, we just did this film Monday, just a few days ago. We did the last. Uh, audio mix for To The Sea. And I said to uh, Ian Anderson, who's my um, uh, audio designer, I said, you know, this is the last time I'm ever going to watch this. I've realized this is the last time I'll watch the movie because in a month when I watch this, all I'm going to think is, shit, why don't I do that? Or why don't I do this? And if I analyze it, it's because we didn't have the time and there was no facilities sure. there for that. or You know, that doesn't actually work. And that's the same as anything. It's kind of like, because you know, mostly magicians are listening to this. It's kind of like you spend two years working on a card trick, coming up with all the ways that the card trick could work. And it's complex, and it requires practice, and you practice it. And you're only able to perform it once in front of the biggest possible audience you can imagine. right? And then you can never perform it again, but you always have to re-watch that one performance. Ah, uh, interesting. Now... The audience may react, the audience may love it, but you will always look back at it and go, why didn't I do that? Yeah. And it's very, and also, in order to do your card trick, you also have to find people to give you a couple million dollars in order yeah. to afford the cards. Yeah. So it's it's crazy. Wow, that's it's crazy, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's great. Um, and I have spoken to other directors, by the way. I've spoken to, um, I was at Orlando Film Festival and spoken uh, to these, um, I don't think they were a couple, but. They might be by now, but it was the two uh, directors, and they were both saying, you know, the same thing. You know, they, we were all sitting outside where our films were playing, and we said, yeah, I can't watch it anymore, because, you know, and it's the same conversation we were having. And um, I remember Peter Jackson saying that he has never been able to watch Lord of the Rings. Wow. Because all he's seeing is all the issues that he had. Sure, of course. And I think maybe in the last year I saw him say that he finally sat down, had a few glasses of wine, and just put it on, and... Really enjoyed himself because yeah. all of, he detached himself from all of the stuff that wow. came with that. And that, that's the thing. It's exactly like a convention organizer, right? We're at, we're at a convention right now, and David Sandy has organized a great event for everybody. But he can't be enjoying it like we are. Of course not. He's, he's running he's, around. He's, he's running around, taking care of putting out every fire he can think of. Later when we say that was a great convention, he's, he's going to remember about the, the problem with the air conditioning or the, whatever exactly. that thing was that bothered him. Yeah, that, that dead body. I mean, how, how are you going to cover well, that, that was, up? That was fine. Luckily, the flush... Is really strong in the perfect. Well, that works. Um, On uh, on big major motion pictures, they will screen it for an audience 
and sometimes make changes. Mm -hmm. Do you do that with uh, your small films that you're um, doing? Small? I screen it for people that I uh, that I trust. The problem is that I don't. Ha I only have so much latitude. I see. It, especially in these movies, if um, you know, I'm all you know. I'm talking right now about doing bigger things with more money, and. I still have to bring a sensibility to that that allows us to do more with the money that we have. Right. Whereas if we go, you know, if we have, you know, a $120 million budget and there's another $20 million set aside for reshoots, then there's a there's a productive part of that. You go in and the audience says, that doesn't work. Well, we can go out and, we, and, and shoot see, it yeah. and fix that. Where we have to do that in the writing and we have to do that in the film. I'm with you. Um, but... You know, I'll sit with those people, and they will they will make comments, and then we'll analyze comments, and then I'll make a decision based on that. Um, when we show it to a full audience, I'm always listening to what they say, but that kind of moves moves me to the next film. You know. Yes, this uh, one's done. This, this one's, one's done. done. You know, and the funny thing is that uh, you know we did a screening in London. Our premiere was in London, and in the Q and A, a guy asked that, that you know I use a sort of I've got three different things happening in Isolani. And in order to try and separate them, and because we didn't have time to do beautiful time transitions and all the, you know, we really had to hustle in this movie. We, I went for a, a sort of chapterization, very much like older movies, you know, you fade to black, you come in on the next day. Or you, yeah. you know, you dissolve to something that's happening at the same time. And I know what a dissolve means and I know what a fade means in order to illustrate. And so the audience is always aware that we're moving to the next day. Or in later, you know, it's not the same time as this. Yes. There are other ways to do that, which I would prefer to do in some cases. But for this, I quite liked it. So somebody asked me about that in the Q and A, and they said, "Why did you choose that?" And I said, "Well, I chose I chose it because it was a necessity. But I also like, you know, when I watch older films, films, you know, including silent era films, I like that that's the way that they keep the audience grounded in each different, you know, when you get to very complex stuff." So it was a useful tool, um, and I think it works, but there's two fades in the whole thing that I'd still look at and I'd go, I shouldn't have done a fade, I should have done something else. Oh. But I asked him afterwards, because we were in the bar, and the guy who asked me the question, I said, uh, was, that, was that an issue for you? And he says, no, I, I really liked it. I felt it kept the whole thing even and kept me grounded. And then um, another guy absolutely hated it. Felt, felt that it made the time run long. and So then you start obsessing over it and you ask people and most of them didn't really notice it. They just were carried along with the film. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you do think, well, maybe today's audience is one I feel completely engaged at all times. They don't want to be, like, dropped into darkness at hmm. any point. Um, and then, you know, I shot to the sea, which, you know, the whole film's in darkness, frankly. So, so you know, it's like, it's really a... It's interesting. It's a learning experience, and I think that's the thing that I'm, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable in every single decision, but the one of the things that I'm very comfortable about is that it's my way or better on set. You know, I come in, I know exactly what I want to do, and I know exactly how I want to get to it. And if my DP has a better idea, um, I'm open to it. Um, if it's a different idea, I I will analyze it more closely. Uh, you know, your your DP you always want to listen to. His job is to, you know, is to make this thing look, you know, w what we've talked about. And you mm -hmm. know, it, and and I happen to have a very good DP. But if somebody comes to me with, I would I would do it this way. I'm not interested. A different is not is not interesting. So 
I'm confident enough to come in and say this is what we're doing, and I'm open enough to say, well, if you've got something better, tell me. But most of the time, people, you don't want them to have too much input because... Well, that would just slow you down, I would think. I mean, you're working, you really have a schedule you have to keep to. There can't be a lot of debate on the day. I mean, if we're not shooting within an hour starting on the day, then, you know, I'll I'll send my first AD to start cracking the whip. And that's that's, that's non-negotiable on every day. Um, But... If some, you know, sometimes you, you look at something and somebody says, mm, I was wondering about this, and you realize it's worth going back and doing that, then we, then we will do it. But a lot of times people, you know, actors especially, you know, say, why don't we do it like this? And you have to then explain to them, well, because in another scene that we haven't shot yet, this is going to happen, and then that won't jive with that. And so all of these things tend to uh, get in the way, but you absolutely have to leave the door open for someone who's standing there thinking well, this is all wrong to to find out what the issue is because maybe we didn't see it uh-huh. um, so but I, at the same time I don't come on looking to prevaricate there's always a plan doesn't always go to plan but there's always a plan and uh, I'm always very um, you know very firm about how we're getting from this point to this point um, but then at the end when it's all said and done and you look back on it you go Hmm. This is the, this is where you have to learn. Yeah, and and it's, it's it's a funny thing, you know. You have to be almost arrogant in your approach. Without you know, I think I'm a pretty good manager of people on set because I don't generally get angry and I, everything's every problem is an opportunity and all right. that kind of stuff. But if you get to the end and then you you start realizing, oh, I would have done it this way, I would have done it that way. That's the problem, I think, with the, with this type of process is that it's not like you can learn on the job as much as you know, yes. you'd like to because you're, you're you know your your experience grows in front of the audience yeah whereas with magic or comedy one audience sees it and you tweak it and the audience sees it and you tweak it and finally right. you've got it and that's when you go on fool us right exactly so it's it's a, it's a, and and, and you, as you can imagine that has a uh, you know that makes the whole process quite interesting and stressful fabulous oh i should also mention before we stop Paul also does some killer magic tricks. Thanks for talking to me, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, let's do some killer magic tricks.